And I always introduce you to people as one of the smartest and hardworking women that I've ever met. And I truly mean it. Your resume was impeccable before you came to law school. I was blown away the first time I seen it. I think it was like five or six pages long. <laughs> it still stands out as the longest resume I've ever reviewed. And I've seen a lot of. That was Jimmy McMillan, Senior Corporate Counsel and DEI Director for Penske Entertainment, Indianapolis Motor Speedway and IndyCar, serving as our guest host on this reverse podcast interview with me, Angela Freeman, as your guest. And this is IBJ's The Freedom Forum with Angela B. Freeman. My name is Jimmy McMillan, and I am the Senior Corporate Counsel and Chief Diversity Officer for the for Penske Entertainment, which is the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, the NTT IndyCar Series, and IMS Productions. And I am super excited to be here today as the host of the Freedom Forum. And no, we have not replaced Angela Fre- Freeman. <laughs> Instead, I am super proud to be here in a position to do a reverse podcast interview of your typical host and your normal host, Angela Freeman, so that you can learn more about this dynamic and wonderful person that I call my friend, my mentee, my colleague, my superstar, my superhero, my everything. Angela, (laughs) your listeners have allowed you to guide them through the professional and personal backgrounds of so many of your distinguished guests. But I am sure that at this point, what they really want to know is who is this wonderful and outstanding force of nature known as Angela Freeman. (laughs) Thanks, Jimmy. I'm so excited you're here to uh, share this experience with me. There's nobody better that I could have thought about doing this with. So thank you for um, being here. And I'm excited to have this conversation with you. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. I want to start by congratulating you on the phenomenal historical accomplishment of becoming an African-American female capital partner at the prestigious top 100 law firm of Barnes & Thornburg LLP. Just an amazing accomplishment, which is extremely rare, not only here, but around the world. But what I wanted to share with our listeners is where did your journey begin? Where were you born? What was your childhood like? What was the journey like that brought you to this pivotal point of achievement? Yeah, thank you for that. So uh, you and I have talked many times about the fact that you're a city boy and I'm a small town country girl. And so I was born in a small town called London, Kentucky, Um, but I was raised in Berea, Kentucky. And that's because at the time, Berea didn't have a maternity ward in their hospital. So my mother literally had to go to London, Kentucky to have me, but we lived in Berea. And that's where I was raised. Berea is a small town, country town in Appalachian, Kentucky. Uh, Many people may know it. If you know it at all, you probably know it because it's the home of Berea College. Um, And Berea College is not just the crafts capital of the world, but Berea College and the city has a really awesome and dynamic history and diversity. It's, in fact, the first college in the South that allowed co-ed and interracial students to study together. And there at Berea, they have free tuition, but everybody has to work. You have to have a work-study job. So that's kind of the dynamic that Berea had, even though it was predominantly white um, city and town, it had a lot of diversity and inclusion values there that I had the benefit of growing up around. And that's kind of what instilled my values of hard work and diversity and getting to know different people and all of those things that have come to fruition in my career. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. But my parents uh, moved from Cincinnati, Ohio. That's where all my family is. They moved to 
Berea when I was, before I was born, actually. And my father was a vet. He served in three branches of the military. My mother um, was a stay-at-home mom my whole childhood. So I really had a small-town country childhood, like literally grew up in a small town. We had a little skating rink down the street and, you know, a park down the street, library at the college. But it was awesome. I mean, it was a wonderful childhood. I was and have been the face of diversity for as long as I can remember. And so being in many of the environments I'm in now as in STEM and law, that doesn't challenge me that much because that's all I know. And so I've been literally, as I look back on my childhood, I've been kind of blazing trails for as long as I can remember. I was the first black sweetheart queen, the first black homecoming queen, first black class president, valedictorian. I would lead all kind of clubs. I was in track, a cheerleader. I swam for years. And so all of those experiences really prepared me to be comfortable in order to lead and have influence in spaces where there just wasn't many diverse folks. So I think that is one of the biggest benefits I've had over the course of my life is that, again, being in STEM and law, I'm used to being one of few diverse faces and one of few diverse voices in in a situation. So left high school, went to the University of Louisville on academic scholarship, and thank God for that because we were poor. There was no way my parents were in any position to pay for college. Got a Woodford Porter scholarship to go to the University of Louisville, and that really set up the next phase of my life. Went there, double majored in biology and chemistry, and then, you know, went on to grad school, and that's kind of what ended up leading me to coming to Indianapolis, starting my job at and all the rest is kind of history. Yeah, so you double majored. I did. In biology and chemistry. And you say that as if that's an easy thing. I know more people who started in chemistry and biology and switched majors majors <laughs> than I know people who graduated from college. So so the fact that you say it so flippantly uh, is a little true testament to who you are. But what was that experience like? Well, you know, it sounds more impressive than it actually is because it was biology and chemistry. So many of the classes overlap. So what I realized is, you know, fairly far into my academic career is that if I just took an extra few more classes, I could really double major versus getting a major and a minor. And I thought, why not? <laughs> that's easy enough. So that's why it kind of ended up being like that. But it worked out because I've used every bit of that background. That's what led me to my science career and then patent law, which we'll talk about later. So it, it, it was very beneficial. I will also say, because I don't want this podcast to present that I've always been successful, I had planned to be a chemist and took organic chemistry in college twice. I got a C both times. You had to have a B in order to go into grad school to be a chemistry major. And that kind of defined my path. I instead went into grad school into biology because I didn't get those Bs that I needed in organic chemistry. So that's kind of why I went the biology route as compared to the chemistry route. But to this day, many people say, Angela, you're a chemist. And I say, oh, no, no, I don't claim that. Like chemistry is like serious. And so I'm happy to be a biologist. It's not lost on me that we are doing this podcast one day removed from an important day in the history of education and probably the history of this country, the founding of Zeta Phi Beta 
sorority incorporated your sorority yeah wanted to give you at least a moment to talk about the importance why you joined zeta phi beta sorority and what that has meant to you as a woman of finer sisterhood during during your development and growth yeah i appreciate that you know coming from the the little city i came from where i was the face of diversity went to the university of louisville and i pledged straight out the bat so second semester i pledged and part of the thought process around Pledge and Zeta at the University of Louisville at that time was me and my, my Sands, who are now my Sands, but good friends at the time, we knew we could make a difference it, for that organization. We could really like step it up. We all are STEM people. So that was a big deal. And we wanted to have that impact. We, we knew we could make a change there. Um, what I really appreciate about my time in college as a Zeta was I kind of had the understanding that diversity at that time meant black or white because that's what I was exposed to. And what I learned was I had all these sisters who had come from all different parts of the state and even the country, and we were all diverse. I mean, we were all black women, but we had all kind of different backgrounds, different family upbringings, different experiences. And so that really made me think about diversity in a whole new way that I had previously. So, I mean, we traveled the country together. I took the fir my first plane trip was to Washington, D.C. to go to Howard University and visit the Alpha chapter with my sorors. We had a great time. Awesome. Before becoming a lawyer, you spent you did spend nearly 15 years as a biologist. I see that you still consider yourself to be a biologist. They, right. they haven't weaned that off of you. <laughs> uh, where did you work? What did you learn during your time as a biologist and what made you leave that field and decide to go to law school? What was what was that process like of being a biologist and then transitioning? Because you had a successful career beforehand. Yeah. Well, again, you know, I tell people all the time exposure is everything. I had no idea when I came out with this biology and chemistry degree that sounds so impressive, but I had no idea what kind of career that was going to lead to. All I knew coming from my little country town was biology, chemistry meant a doctor. And I knew early on I wasn't going to be a doctor. I couldn't make it through the health video, the birth and video and health class. So I knew being a doctor was not in my future. But I didn't know what else were the options. <laughs> and so when I was in grad school, I got a job at the University of Louisville as a lab tech down in at the U of L Dental School studying. They had a research lab down there where they were studying studying cleft lip and cleft palate and like the genetic origins of cleft lip and cleft palate, what caused it, that kind of thing. And so that was my first experience in a lab setting outside of being in my grad school lab, but in a paid position as a lab technician. And I didn't know that was a thing. Like I didn't know being a research scientist was a real job that you can make a career out of and a living out of. I just never knew that. And I learned of Eli Lilly and Company which was right down the street. I had never heard of L Lily, hour and a half, hour and 45 minutes from Louisville. And I thought, okay, at the time, Lily was doing mass hiring for 
molecular biologists, biologists, geneticists to really support their new personalized medicine focus. And so they they hired thousands of people. And I was one of those people. I applied. I'll never forget it. Ever in my life, I applied. Didn't get the first offer, but then went back and interviewed again and got three offers. I'll never forget. And I remember begging my lab PI at the UofL Dental School, I really, really want this job. Please give me a good reference. Please give me a good letter of recommendation because I wasn't convinced that she was going to. And that's kind of how it happened. I ended up selecting one of the three jobs, worked in Larry Gelbert's lab. I worked at 98 and LRL, worked out in Greenfield for a while. We got moved out there, came back, worked at Building 48, um, doing more clinical focus. So originally I was in early discovery. Then I went more to the clinical side of things, got to um, develop some lab diagnostics that I actually went and trained people on how to perform these lab tests in a clinical setting, which was really exciting, particularly as it was related to cancer research and cancer therapeutics. So that's kind of how that all happened. But again, it was all a learning. Like I never knew any of this existed when I was in Berea. Like it was literally just learning on the fly and saying, okay, that's an opportunity. I'll go try for that. You get there and say, okay, that's another opportunity. I'll try for that. You have to understand how how mind-blowing it is, even for me, <laughs> to hear that you came from Berea and you've gone to these places and you do make it sound so easy and simple, ex with the exception of the C, you got organic chemistry twice. <laughs> you make it sound so easy and simple to, to come from Berea and then to end up at Eli Lilly for 15 years Speak to the person who's listening to you and going, she's just some exceptional genius. No. Like she must, she just must be some gifted person. What inspires you? What mo You had to have some bad times. You had to have some struggles. I mean, you make it sound easy, but what motivates you or motivated you to achieve at such a high level to even in high school lead these things and be in charge of things and be the valedictorian? It seems like success, 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 success. What motivated you to, to be that? You know, I was blessed enough to have a mother who truly believed I was special. Like, she has told me that my whole life. Angela, you're special. God's got something awesome planned for you. Just keep striving, keep working hard. And so I believe that. I mean, I believe that, you know, there was something special out there for me. I didn't know what it was. I've never, I mean, I didn't even have a clue until I passed the bar exam. It was like, okay. Now I believe that there's something special for me. But I just never knew what that was. But I, I was always, I was smart, number one. So blessed to be smart, that's for sure. But outgoing, always enjoyed people, loved talking to people, loved learning from people, learning things that I didn't know. And so I've always been able to build relationships with people and learn from them and learn what opportunities are available. When you don't know yourself, you got to talk to folks who know more than you. And another thing I will say to my credit is I'm not scared of working hard. I don't mind to work hard. Like I've told people my whole life, when you don't have a pedigree, when you don't have a profile, when you don't have people in high places that you can call and say, yeah, t call them and they'll tell you about Angela. The only thing you have is the ability to show and prove. And that's by working hard. So I've been, you know, an advocate for hard work. Like I see hard work in people now and I'm still impressed. 
And I have a good friend um, who told me when we were working on some board service together that, Angela, you expect that everybody works like you. That's not the case. You're a rarity. And I think as I've had more experience in my life, I've learned that, yeah, I think my work ethic is absolutely a characteristic that a lot of folks don't don't have. Agreed. Agreed. (laughs) So you're at Lilly. And I had heard when I moved here, people don't leave Lily's jobs. Yeah, That's not something that happens. You're at Lily, you're doing well, you're doing phenomenal, but then you get it in your head to become a lawyer and go to law school. Yeah, Where did that come from and why? Yeah, well, you know, I had been working at Lily, had a beautiful career, but you know, like anything in life, after 10 and 12 years, everything becomes mundane and you start looking at what's next for me. I had an awesome career at Lilly. I love being in the lab. I love being a scientist. I love being a black female scientist at Lilly because I was just rare and I knew that. Um, but you start looking long term at some point And I realized I want to do something else. And and I also knew because I had been there long enough, I had seen plenty of people who had a Ph.D. who had done the science route, like go straight science, get your Ph.D., become a P.I. And I didn't want that. Like that wasn't interesting to me. And so I, I should tell you to put some background or some context for this, this decision making was happening around 2008, 2009. The recession had hit. At the time, I had my master's, but I didn't have a PhD, and I was kind of toying with: Do I get a PhD? Do I do something else? What do I do? And I was getting a lot of advice from my scientific colleagues that said, "Angela, don't get a PhD because they can't pay you right now, so don't do that." Well, that was already reiterating what I was feeling, which is, I'm not trying to get a PhD anyway. So that worked. But the question was, so what else? And when you get off that track, it becomes real vague as to what other options. So I was blessed enough to have built a relationship with Alicia DeCudro, awesome, awesome black female lawyer at Lilly who was running things at the time. She was like executive level and I was a peon working in the lab. Like we weren't even in the same ballpark, but we happened to win a diversity award together. And so we we spent some time together. And she got to know me and said, hey, Angela, if if I can help you, please let me know. So a year later, as I'm kind of thinking through my career process, I experienced a gentleman come to Lilly who was a MD. So he had his medical doctorate and a JD. And he was talking about the legal and ethical issues around personalized medicine, all this genetic data that we were generating at the time, privacy issues. And oh my goodness, my mind blew. I, I hadn't thought about that. I hadn't thought about all the legality around all this genetic data. Who owns it? Who has access to it? You know, all this stuff. I was just thinking about the science. Like we're trying to cure cancer. You know, how do we do that? And so I'll never forget coming back to my supervisor at the time who had been on me about, Angela, you need to start thinking about what you're going to do. I'll support you however I can. And I said, I got it. Law school. But then talking to Alicia, she's like, well, Angela, you're a scientist. If you want to be a lawyer, you should think about patent law. And I'm like, what is that? I don't even know what that is now. I was living at Lilly, working at Lilly, when all the patents were expiring. I remember the the feeling in the company when that was happening. But 
it hadn't resonated with me like what that actually meant. But the idea that I could capitalize on this career as a scientist and kind of transition it into a legal career, I thought, oh, I'm all about it. If that's a thing, I want to do that. So I spent like a year or two researching, once again, talking to folks, figuring out what does that mean? Remember, I wasn't from Indiana. I didn't know anything about the schools, the law school, the programs, what it took to get there. I'd been out of school for over a decade. I tell people all the time, I didn't even know if my mind would work like that anymore. You know, so I spent a lot of time thinking about what does this mean? What are the requirements? Can I do this? And remember at the time, I had a family. I had a son. I had a, a career. I had a husband. I had a mortgage. So it wasn't just can I go back to law school? It was how do I manage and manipulate all this to make it work? But once again, relying on my work ethic, I decided if I got in, I'd make it work. And at the time, I wanted, didn't want any regrets. I don't want to look back and say, woulda, coulda, shoulda. Oh, if you would have applied, if you could have applied. So I thought I'll apply and see what happens. Particularly when I learned about the night program at IU McKinney, I thought, oh, I'm all about it. If, if I can do it, if it can physically be done, I'll make it happen. So I applied and they messed around and let me in. And so we we met, actually. That's right. While you were in law school in that night program. That's right. And I always introduce you to people as one of the smartest and hardworking women that I've ever met. And I truly mean it. Your resume was impeccable before you came to law school. I was blown away the first time I seen it. I think it was like five or six pages long. <laughs> it still stands out as the longest resume I've ever reviewed. And I've seen a lot of you were a wife. And a mother at the time. And, uh, you know, it was a challenge for me as your mentor to get you truly on the law career track program initially. Can you explain how you managed through this significant transition in careers while balancing, you know, an already established family and home life to be as successful as you were in law school and then finally get on program <laughs> and end up at Barnes and Thorberg? When you and I first met, I'll never forget it. We we both tell this story. You were you basically were talking about the typical law school path. You go to law school, you go summer associateship, you go, you know, and I remember coming up to you and saying, okay, but what happens if you have a real job? Like, <laughs> I can't go play, you know, I can't go and dibble and dabble for six weeks with the play job. I'll never forget it. You said, Angela, at some point, you got to decide that you want to be a lawyer and not a scientist. And I thought, okay, I hear you, but today ain't that day. <laughs> And so, you know, I continue working and I did also learn because I took heed to your advice that as a patent attorney, right, I had more credibility and more weight having continuing with that science background than jumping off doing an associateship where I go do labor and employment law and I go do governmental services. I knew I didn't want to do any of that. I didn't take any of those classes in law school. I took only IP classes in law school because I knew I was going to be a patent attorney. So, you know, it did take me a while to get on board. And, and there were a lot of things that had to happen. I had it had to be made clear to me that what I thought was going to happen wasn't going to come to fruition. And when that became clear, I I got back on board. <laughs> I got back on on your path and said, OK, 
Because what you told me, and it changed my life, was, okay, Angela, if you're not going to go to the law firm now, you need to get out here and start talking to people and let them know who you are, what you're trying to do, and so that when your time comes, they've already heard of you. And that I did do. I did that from the beginning of my first semester of law school. I would have lunches with attorneys because, again, I didn't know, okay, now you're in law school, but what's the next step look like? Like, I had no idea. So I did a lot of talking with attorneys and talking with people to figure out, okay, what do I do after this? And how do I make this work? And, okay, you can go into these big corporations, but you can also go into law firms. I'll tell you another reason I was resistant to your advice originally is because I had heard about the horror stories <laughs> from law firms, right? How they treat women, how they treat people of color. You know, I had established a reputation. I had some reasonable amount of respect. I was an older woman. <laughs> so the idea of going somewhere where they're talking to you crazy and treating you, I had no interest in that. And so that was another reason why I was resistant until it became clear that that was the path that I needed to go. And I will tell you, I don't regret that at all to this day. I love my my law firm. I love the opportunity. I was really, really blessed to find Barnes at a time that Barnes found me. I think we found each other at the perfect time. Barnes had kind of transitioned, right? But I think, you know, and particularly the people in my department had kind of evolved a bit and realized that diversity was going to be the wave of the future. And I just happened to be one that came along. And it's been great. You are really dropping some jewels. I hope that they play this at the law school because there are certainly a lot of law students who could benefit from just the last answer to your question. <laughs> you were recruited by the Barnes & Thornburg Intellectual Property Department. That department is infamous. The team has always been strong, close, busy, and on top of their game. What has it been like to work at Barnes & Thornburg in the IP department? And what have been the keys to your career success in that department and at the firm? Now, you're talking about the IP department, and they are awesome, and they like each other, and they actually have fun together, and they hang out together. And I'm like, okay, now that's a little more my speed. I can get with that. And that is still the truth. Like, that was an absolute perfect representation of my current department. They are some of the kindest people that I've ever met, and we have a lot of fun together. One of the keys to my success, I truly believe, again, I mentioned that, you know, they had evolved, I do believe, to a point that they were open to having a diverse female on their team. I was at a point where I was willing to go down that road. And so I think they took that for face value. They didn't question me about it. They're like, okay, you got 12 years at Lilly. All right, then. You know, it wasn't. And, and they truly gave me the platform to do my job, to learn my job first. I mean, let's, let's be clear. They trained me. I had no idea. Again, I didn't even know what patent law was. Nevertheless, how to do it, how to practice. They trained me from the ground up but they actually gave me the freedom to do it how I do it. They took me at face value. And quite frankly, I think it has worked. They care about me because I have been that same Angela since the day I walked in that door. 
And I care about them because they accepted me just like I was. And, you know, certainly as you get in environments, you know, we 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 evolve too, right? I understand that, okay, what what I was doing at Lilly may not work in the legal environment. But who I am is still pretty much who I was at Lilly, who I was at UofL, who I was at Berea, and being able to be my authentic self. I've always been very proud to be a Black woman. I think being in this environment, certainly while it, you know, emphasizes that because I am one of few or one of very few, I'm comfortable with that. You know, again, and that goes back to my background. I've always been the face of diversity. I've always been one of few diverse women in a sea of, you know, predominantly white, male, female, whoever it is, teachers, students, peers, whatever. So I've learned to how to carry myself in that environment, but still be true to who I am and my culture and my people and represent us hopefully well. Your strength and your fear, fearlessness just comes across even in your voice. You don't have to see you to know that. I have to ask you, though, you know, I tell my kids, I learn more about when you, you when you fail and mm-hmm. how you react to failure than when you succeed. And I know being at a large law firm um, like Barnes and Thornburg myself, that failure had to come at some point. You had to get criticized. And many times what I've seen is people of color, particularly when they fail or when they get criticized, they leave. Somebody like you had options. I'm sure you had the option to leave and go other places to do other things. When you failed, I'm not going to ask you if you failed, but when you failed and when you were criticized and when you were in this learning process where I'm sure there were things that you did not do right. Yeah. What happened and how did you react to it? So, first of all, I would say when I went to Barnes, even after having a whole career at Lilly, I knew I was starting over. I'm starting in a whole nother career a whole nother industry, a whole nother organization, whole nother set of people, whole nother level of expectations. So I had to get my mind right. In other words, I knew that although I had been successful previously, that don't carry the day today, right? And you have to humble yourself. You have to learn and be willing to learn and not always trying to prove that you know or you can or you... They hired me because they know I had the potential to be successful, but they also know I don't know how to do it today. And they're going to teach me how to do that. You have to humble yourself in order to take the criticism and to learn from it. I think another thing, quite honestly, I again, I was older. I had lived life. I had been disappointed. I had been through tough times. I have seen challenges that I don't know how I'm going to get out of that. And I think when you've had some of those experiences and you get to the other side, somebody hurting your feelings because you didn't write the sentence properly, you got to do more than that to shake me because I've been shaken and I've, I've, I've seen the other side. So I think having that kind of life perspective, that kind of life experience puts criticism and failures, particularly if they're in the context of work. That's what happens at work. You fail, you learn, you get better, right? You don't make that mistake again. When you've already had opportunities to have real failures and real life experiences, that that don't shake you. And I think that's kind of the attitude I took. Now, it'll rattle me a little bit, right? And I get back up and keep going. But there's nothing that has happened at Barnes that would shake me more than anything that I've gone through personally. You have satisfied 
successful practice here, and you certainly have dedicated and happy clients. What is the specific nature of your practice? So there might be some people who are listening to this podcast oh, yeah. who are embarrassed to admit they don't know what intellectual property law is. Absolutely. And who are some of your clients and what sets you apart from other intellectual property attorneys? What makes Angela Freeman a first choice attorney for someone with an IP issue? What are we talking about? Intellectual property is the practice of law that allows attorneys to protect your clients, literally the things they think of, the creative nature of work. So whether that's art, whether that's music, whether that's um, a writing, something you wrote, or if that's a new innovation, it's a new invention, it's a new solution to a problem. All those things are protectable by a set of rights that are ca called intellectual property, whether that's patent rights, patent rights um, protect your widgets, your innovations, your inventions, um, new methods, new compositions, new products, new chemical composition. Copyright protects your your works of expression, your music, your songs, your poems, that kind of thing. And then trademarks protect your brand, your logo, those kind of things associated with your business. And all of this is to make sure that someone out here in the public doesn't have the ability to just infringe or just steal your intellectual property, the, the things that you created in your mind and are now have the opportunity to, to make or sell and make a business all of them. And typically, <laughs> it's not when it's in your mind or when it's small business, but when it starts blowing up, whatever that product was or the song, that's when you've got to worry about protection because that's when it's out in the public and people say, oh, good idea, Jimmy. I think I'll do that myself, right? So that's why you need to protect it. So I went to Barnes with the very intent to become a patent attorney. And they hired me to do that. They trained me. Um, and I was super excited to have the opportunity to capitalize on all those scientific years of experience and, and use that in my legal realm. The Freedom Forum would like to send out a special Happy New Year to our audience and hope everyone has a great start to their 2023. Now, let's take a quick break. Get caught up on the state's top business news every business day with the Inside Indiana Business Radio On Demand podcast. Available now at InsideIndianaBusiness.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Everyone is at a turning point in their life, a point where you either hit rock bottom or the world comes clearer to you and you realize, here's my true purpose. Have you ever had one of those moments and what was it like? I, I won't go into too much personal detail, but but I do want to be transparent because I I don't want people to think that it's all been roses and rainbows. You know, like you said, looking at my resume, it's success after success, but there's been a lot of challenges and disappointments and failures through that time. And I think part of my success now is having gone through some really tough life lessons about people and about who people are and that people change and people disappoint you. You know, like learning all the context of really getting to know people. Um, when you're younger, everything's a lot more black and white, right? Everything's good or bad, right or wrong. As you grow, especially if you have the awesome opportunity to really get to know people, 
you learn it's not that black and white. People are complicated. People can be great people and do really stupid or horrible things. You know, people can be horrible people and do wonderful, awesome things, right? It's not so defined. And I think one of my biggest challenges was kind of learning those tough life lessons in the context of being an adult and being married, being a wife, being a mother, and still having to perform and show up. And I think having some of those challenges really has prepared me for some of the challenges that I've experienced in my career, some of the failures. Uh, again, I think I said earlier, when you've had real challenges and disappointments, it kind of puts other things into context. You know, it doesn't rattle you. It doesn't shake you as bad. But I don't want people to ever think that I or anybody else they're working with, being supervised by, has just had a rosy you know, career with no challenges, you, and, and I think it's even more prevalent now. Like the talk and the focus on mental health now as compared to 10 and 20 years ago is completely different. People are willing to talk about, yeah, I'm going through some challenges. Yeah, my kid was up all night sick and I had to be up with them. That's why I'm 30 minutes late or my eyes look the way they do or whatever. Um, we've seen suicides. Twitch is the most recent one, which just shook me, where you're like, what is happening? All these influential, seemingly happy people, you know, taking their own life. You know they must be dealing with something. And I can say for my own self, I walked around laughing and giggling, having a great day with many folks, struggling, like really at an ugly place personally. But I also would say that I am thankful for things like law school and my job, that when things do get challenging, allow me to refocus my energy, refocus my time, not just dwell in it where you get those crazy thoughts and things start. I, I will be the first to say, and I'm so thankful, this is when you just got to give God glory, that, you know, when I was going to law school, I was challenged. I was in a real tough place. And part of my success in law school was devoting my energy and my attention to something that I could actually control. I could control that. I could control how much I studied. I could control whether I got good grades or not. And at that time in my life, when it felt like things in my personal life were kind of spinning out of control. That was something that I could grasp onto. And I've learned over the course of my life, that's kind of how I roll. When things kind of start spinning out crazy, I grab onto something that I can control. My, my mother had and my family had always taught me education is an equalizer and it's something nobody can take away from you. So at that time, I'm like, you know what, let me jump on in this law school. You know, if, if all else fails, <laughs> I can get a law degree and nobody else can take that away from me. At least let me work on me. I can't fix everybody else. And, and you know, but I can work on me and make me the best me I can be. And that's kind of what I did. And um, I know you guys can't see me right now, but I actually got tears in my eyes because, you know, I can relate to the mental health piece of this and being in a bad place and getting to know people. And Angela is one of those people who I was blessed enough and grateful enough to know during a really dark time in my life. I was going through a divorce. I was having hard times. I remember us sitting in the airport together yep. and me just pouring out my heart to Angela about 
who I was, the time I was having, my just lostness and feeling bottom out. And she's sitting there as my my mentee looking at me going, my mentor is falling apart in front of me, but she was there for me and really picked me back up and said, hey, you are still Jimmy McMillan. And to me, you're fantastic. And to me, you're wonderful at a time when I really needed to hear it. And that's one of the reasons our relationship is what it is. It's really real. A lot of people claim they have relationships and mentor and mentee relationships. I don't think you've had a mentor and mentee relationship until you've cried together over something. That's and right. so it's something I've always appreciated. You have that dedication to mentorship. I bug you by sending you so many young men and women to be mentored and they benefit from it. You know, how do you feel and what do you expect when someone comes to you and says, Hey, Angela, would you be my mentor? You know, I'm I'm inspired by it. what do you expect out of them? Because you could be tough. You 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 tough. You're a tough love mentor. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. <laughs> I, I've learned that. I'm learning that more and more. Um, I'm a tough love mentor. I'm a tough love mom. I'm a tough love wife. I, I think that's just who I am. And what I've learned is that I just love hard. And for me, that means to be in a relationship actually means something, whether that's a friendship, a mentorship, or a personal or professional partnership. I am a tough love mentor because in my experience, again, as a black woman or a woman of color, a diverse person in STEM and law, super highly specialized fields that have not been diverse historically, I just don't get many opportunities to make major mistakes or errors and think that I get to keep my role or position. We just don't get that type of leeway. And likewise, I think it's a disservice to my diverse mentees in STEM and law, particularly women and people of color, to think that they will also get a fair and equal opportunity to make major mistakes and blunders. For good or bad, right or wrong, we simply have to be better in order to play at the same level as our majority counterparts. And while that isn't fair or right, and we continue to work for better opportunities and better environments, it is true. And until that changes, I have to be tough. I have to be tough for myself. I have to be tough for my team. I have to be tough for my family and have the highest expectations of all of us, as that is the standards by which we will be judged on a regular basis. So you just have to excel and search for excellence. You know, you, you, you sometimes as a leader, it's difficult to do because you do see that that strength. You've been a leader in this community. It's probably weird for me to, to hear it said, but you are certainly a leader here in Indianapolis and in Indiana for, as a transplant. But one day you came to me and you told me something that was outstanding. You said, hey, Tack, I just want you to know I'm about to go give a speech to women in Africa. Yeah. In technology. I said, what? Like, wh how are you getting there? How did that happen? Talk to me a little bit about that, because for me, I was I was like, she's this is this is a rocket. This this <laughs> this in this in stratosphere. Tell me about your development as a leader in that moment when you were in Africa. But see, this is why I'm saying getting out and talking to people will lead you to things you never, ever knew existed. The whole trip. So, yes, in 2020, right, be, literally a week before the whole world shut down, I went to South Africa to speak um, to a conference of African women about STEM. And there and these were Ph.D. scientists, 
again, all black females, but PhD scientists in every kind of biology, chemistry, et cetera, in South Africa. And that came about by me attending an event, speaking to a woman who is in charge of the program. It's a collaboration between Howard University and this university in South Africa. They do it every year, every couple years, where either a cohort of black female professors from HBCUs travel to South Africa and go teach these students or talk to them. Um, And it's a whole program. It's a conference or vice versa. The students from South Africa come to the U.S. So that year I just happened to meet this woman and she just point blank invited me. She didn't know me from Adam. It was amazing. I'm telling you, God works in mysterious ways. I just happened to be at this event talking to this woman who was a friend of an attorney. And she said, we talking about what we do. And she said, hey, I'm in charge of this conference. Would you be interested? She said, we'll pay for everything. We've got a whole, you know, roster of women going. Um, We'll pay for your ticket. We've got a whole itinerary. I said, oh, absolutely. Sign me up. And so that's how it happened. I, I was blessed enough to go, not just me, but this whole cohort. There were like eight or nine of us, a couple of black female grad students, black female professors from Spelman, Xavier. Um, oh, I can't remember them all, but there were multiple. It was awesome. Absolutely phenomenal. And just go talk to them about how much they're needed in STEM, how much, you know, it is important for them to show up and be, you know, represented and involved. And of course, me, that patent attorney, letting them also know, okay, if you get tired of the lab, no, patent law is a real option. It's a real career focus, et cetera, et cetera. So it was phenomenal. It was absolutely one of the most outstanding experiences of my life. And again, it literally stemmed from talking to folks. Have you thought about that? You know, you talk about that moment when you were at Lilly and this gentleman came with it and came in with an MD and JD and inspired you that for those women in, Af- in South Africa, yeah, you are you are a woman who came back across the pond, came back across the ocean and may have inspired some woman there. Lord willing. To yeah. go into law as well. I yeah. mean, just just got to be just momentous. Well, that's why you that's when, you know, it it ain't about you. You know, I mean, I, I said. I was truly made a believer. You know, the the old folks will say, you know, particularly in church, you know, God works in mysterious way. He'll do more than you ever. But it really was when I passed the bar exam, when I was made a believer that, okay, God got more in store for my life than I ever could imagine. Because number one, I was convinced I failed the bar exam. It was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And I was absolutely convinced I failed. I went back to Barnes was like, okay, we need to talk about what happens. <laughs> When y'all get the re- the reality that I failed the exam, I didn't fail. I passed. Um, but that was really the moment when I, I remember telling my mom, like, mom, you've been telling me this my whole life. But now I believe it. He's got something in store for me. And so when things like that happen, you just got to look around in wonderment and be like, man, who would have thought? And also, I mean, I also want to speak to the no's, the failures so many times. And, and I will admit there have not been that many times where I have not been successful at what I was trying to achieve. But I have experienced failure. I have experienced some real hard, tough no's that were heartbreaking. And then when you get to experiences like that, you realize, had I not been where I was at the time I was, you know, that was a once in a lifetime opportunity. It would never happen again. 
you realize that all those things work, you know, for the good of that particular, for, for my good, for that moment. I couldn't have been there had I, what I had planned have actually come true fruition. So that no was the best benefit, was the best blessing I could have had in my life. It's hard to see that in the moment when you're feeling the heartbreak. And I felt every bit of it. I felt the heartbreak. I felt the, this is not what I had planned. This is not what I'm working for. This is not, I hadn't planned on paying for four years of law school. Like that wasn't in my plan. But when you look back, you're like, everything happened just the way it was supposed to happen. Me going to Barnes, big law firm, everybody's like, why in the world would you want to go over there? I heard horror stories. I'm still there and I'm there because I want to be there because I had seen like I couldn't be here without all the things that have happened to date happening just the way they were supposed to. So my point in saying that is when you're feeling that heartbreak of a disappointment, you didn't get the job. You didn't get the promotion. You didn't get the raise. You didn't get whatever it is that you know you are made for that. It was made for you. Yeah, that's what you think, right? But there are some bigger plans, whether it's the universe, God, whatever you may believe in or think, that may have even better things in store for you. And you can't see that at the moment because you so, you know, focused in on that one thing, that one promotion. I believe that the way you change things is from a position of strength. You go in, you show your value, you show your worth. And then when that's realized, then you're in a position to change things. Let's change how we hire folks. Let's change if it's really important to have this GPA versus that GPA. Let's let's give a little more credibility to grit and life experience. We've never given much credence to that. But what I'm seeing is the most successful people in this law firm have some grit to their name. You know, the biggest sign of, you know, your belief that it's not all about you and that positive presence is your creation of the Freedom Forum. And this this podcast where you've interviewed the real leaders of Indianapolis and Indiana and displayed their stories. And I'm certainly grateful to have been one of the beneficiaries of that. What led you to create this Freedom Forum? And and what has it meant to you uh, as you've been able to hear the stories and, and engage with people and display those stories for other people around the world? Yeah. So I, I appreciate that. I should first say I did not create the Freedom Forum. The Freedom Forum, this podcast, was really developed as a collaboration. It was the brainchild of IBJ. Nate Feltman, the CEO, and Leslie Windebenner, um, the editor, came to me and said, hey, we had this idea idea about a podcast for the IBJ that is focused around diversity. Um, In 2020, during COVID, I had done a, a podcast interview with the IBJ. Mason King interviewed me and they had heard that interview and said, we heard that interview and we think you'd be the perfect host for this podcast. And I thought, once again, see how God works. Like, I mean, seriously, I couldn't come up with that in a million years. I asked him, like, are you serious? Because for me, it was just the biggest blessing. It had come right after I had finished my stint with the women in high tech. And I couldn't have imagined anything better that would have fed my passions the way this does. So I was like, absolutely. I'm all about it. And I also appreciated the opportunity that they gave me kind of some freedom to 
interview folks that I knew had real stories like yourself around diversity, around the challenges that you've experienced, where you've been. And I wanted to tell those real stories, not just the, you know, boilerplate diversity MLK language, but real talk about. And so that's why we named it the Freedom Forum so that, you know, my guests felt like they had the freedom to come on here and talk really about some of their challenging experiences, some of the stuff that many of us have kept to ourselves. I mean, there are so many stories of, you know, challenge and neglect and just getting treated poorly here in this state that we keep to ourselves or we tell each other in very private relationships, but people don't know that. And part of it is we're scared of repercussions. We're scared of the backlash. We're scared. But the truth is the truth. I mean, and you know what they say, uh, you, you can't handle the truth, right? But I wanted people, because when you put a face on things, when you hear the ugly, nasty truth, and you have a face to associate with it, and you see these people in a point of power and position. I'm not talking to folks who are still in that muck and mire because we've all been there. You've now transcended, you've looked back, you've learned the lessons and can give that to somebody else. That's the folks I want to talk to because you do now have the opportunity to help somebody else through your challenges. And those are the things I wanted to talk about. And that's what we try to do here. Well, you know, law students are going to listen to this. Lawyers are going to listen to this. Um, you know, I can just see as I sit here, a number of people that you will never meet who are going to listen to this podcast and be inspired. But one of the people I know is going to, are going to listen to this. You're going to have CEOs who are going to listen to this forum and say, I'm trying to create the next Angela Freeman. I'm trying to recruit that person, develop that person. Maybe I got somebody who's working here and I'm just trying to draw that out and give them the opportunity. I want somebody at a law firm saying, I want my Angela Freedom Freeman to be capital partner. What would you recommend that those companies do to recruit a you, to develop a you, and to retain a you as their next superstar? Yeah, that that's a really good question. And it's probably one of the most challenging questions you asked me because I don't quite know the answer yet. Because I'm there now. I'm the person now looking for the next Angela Freeman. And it's challenging. <laughs> it makes me appreciate the, the characteristics I bring, but it also lets me know. Why is it so hard? Like It is hard. It is. And it shouldn't be. I think there are mo a multitude of reasons um, why it's challenging. But, but I think... A lot of it, number one. So let's let's start with the things that we can control. What would I tell that CEO is treat your diverse talent respectfully and gracefully and you will get top performers. Right. Nobody is going to perform their best when they're getting talked to crazy or being, you know, listen to condescending language. There is a way to criticize folks, to give feedback without just being condescending. Right. And just beating people down. I just said I'm learning. Right. I I'm learning that as well. But. Certainly the folks I know, myself personally, I wouldn't have dealt with that. Like I didn't have to deal with that and I'm thankful, but I wouldn't have put up with that for very long. So that's part of it. People are just going to leave. Like people are, are um, rebelling with their feet. I'm just out. Like I'm not going to deal with that. I also think you truly have to invest in their training. Like, you know, not just relying on them to figure it out, but 
investing in their true training, particularly when you're in fields like patent law and legal and even technical, scientific, when you have to have true technical understanding and chops. Eight and 10 years is a long time for people to get any kind of promotion, any kind of recognition, any kind of good job you did well. And certainly in law, I was trained that, look, in law, you shouldn't expect people to pat you on the back and say, good job. They expect perfection. And I understand that. But everybody wants to feel appreciated sometime. Everybody wants to feel like they add value and that they're special. And I think particularly in the legal field and science, the investment is so long and so deep to actually get a person to, you know, off their learning curve where they're really performing at top level. You can't afford people to just say, you know what, you talked to me crazy yesterday, I'm gone, right? I'm not dealing with that. I think you also have to build relationships. You got to let people know, I care about you, even if I didn't say whatever I said to you right yesterday, right? But that takes time to develop those kind of relationships where you can get beyond oh, you didn't say hello to me in the hallway or, you know, you talk to me snidely or whatever that is. So, I mean, relationship building, you got to build relationships with people and let you know that, that you care about them and their success. Some people will hear this podcast and say, this woman is all business, no fun, no pleasure. <laughs> you know, Jesus Christ, she's like the most intense person ever. Uh, you know, a lot of these brothers be scared to even date somebody like you. They like, I... She's awesome, but I, I, at some point, you know, <laughs> Jesus Christ, does the woman ever, does the woman ever have fun? What, just for the record, so people know, you do have fun. I do have fun. What do you do to have fun and relax? I've seen you have fun, but yeah. So first of all, I do work hard, but I play hard. Okay, so I'm a, I'm a cancer, so I'm all about the sun, the beach, the water. Like that is my happy place. That is where I go to. So. I love water. I love everything about it. I love laying out in the sun. I love sunbathing. I love snorkeling. I love scuba diving and snuba and anything that has to do with water. I'm all about it. So that is my happy place. I love amusement parks. I love uh, roller coasters, like, you know, thrill rides. I, you know, I haven't skydived yet, but that's on my bucket list. I would like to do that. Although I need to do it soon because I'm getting older. Like I'm getting scared now. Like when I, about 10 years ago, I'm like, I'm going. Now I'm like, ooh, I don't know about that. I, you know, so I know I need to go ahead and do those things while I'm still, but I, I'm a thrill seeker. My mama said I'm a thrill seeker my whole life. I'm all about, you know, doing wild and crazy things, things that are different. Now, one thing I don't do that I have no interest in doing, that is your love, is motorcycles. I don't do motorcycles. That just looks like death waiting to happen for me. But outside of that, there's not there's not much of anything that I can just think of that I'm just outrightly scared of. Son, a senior in high school, capital partner. You know, you talked about it, Lily. You got to that point where it was like, what's next? Yeah. Now you're at another pivotal point of what's next? Yeah. What's next for you? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know that. I don't know. Um, I'm still in this moment. I mean, I've been a capital partner all of uh, 18 <laughs> days. <laughs> so I'm tr still trying to figure out what that means. But I do know that what I'm particularly interested in Number one is making sure my son's good. Like right now, that is my whole focus. I just told my mom the other day, I would give up any amount of success I've gained 
to make sure that boy is good. That's for real. But outside of that, I think what I'd like to really start focusing on is you know, the next generation, diversifying the practice. And that's what every, I think that's every diverse attorney. I think that's all our goals. But, you know, my hope is with being a capital partner now, I have a little bit more sway and a little bit more position to kind of influence that and make sure that we continue to diversify our law firm and particularly our patent practice. I mean, at this point, only 1.7% of U.S. patent practitioners are diverse females. 1.7%. So I tell people all the time when people you say, oh my gosh, Angela, you're a unicorn. No, I really am. Like I didn't believe that at the time. But yes, we are really rare. That needs to change. Like 1.7% is ridiculous. So I would love to see more women, more diverse folks, more black folks in patent law, whether that's in-house, in private law, whatever it is. As patent agents, there are many mechanisms to be involved in this um, practice of law and be well off, you know, feel like you've got some technical savvy and you've really got a position of expertise. And we need we need more diverse folks in the practice, particularly in IP and patent law. So I'd like to try to use my influence to make that happen before I'm done, for sure. I have truly enjoyed this time with you and sitting down to learn even more about you than I already knew. I'm going to close this out by doing a little game uh, where you're going to tell me the first thing that comes to your mind. Uh, I'm going to name a couple (laughs) of things. Uh, Favorite food? Seafood. All right. Breakfast or lunch? Lunch or happy hour. (laughs) <laughs> That's even better. <laughs> Your favorite sports team? Any team that my son is playing on is my favorite team. But outside of that, you know, I don't too much care. Your favorite TV show? <sighs> I would say like Fixer Upper or all those kind of home renovation shows. I like all those. Do you do home renovations? Doing it right now. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Okay. Read a book or listen to music? Definitely listen to music. I read all the time. Favorite movie? Uh, Shawshank Redemption. Okay. Uh, iPhone or Samsung? iPhone. See, from IP attorneys, all you all you Android <laughs> users. The tech person said at iPhone. <laughs> Favorite restaurant? Uh, I, you know, locally, I'm really a fan of Harry and Izzy's. That's always good to me. Biology or law? Law. This is Jimmy McMillan. Again, it has been an honor and a privilege to serve as the reverse podcast host of (laughs) Angela Freeman's Freedom Forum and be able to spend this time with my beautiful and wonderful mentee uh, and to learn more about her and share this with her. I tell people these podcasts are important not only for your benefit, but this is really a testament that something her grandchildren, great-grandchildren, people down the road will be able to hear and listen to and be able to hopefully capture the spirit of this outstanding and amazing uh, young woman. Despite the fact that she said she was so old, (laughs) this young woman who's sitting in front of me today. So it's been a blessing and it's been an honor and I'm so proud to know you. So thank you for spending this time on the Freedom Forum. Thank you, Jimmy. Thank you again to Jimmy McMillan, and thanks to you for joining us on this 18th episode of IBJ's Freedom Forum with Angela B. Freeman. Please come back next month for another conversation about diversity, equity, and inclusion in the Central Indiana business community.